Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When it comes to fitness, what's real? How about when it really, truly fits your life? That's how Anytime Fitness sees it. Because our coaches see you. It's how they build personal plans that work wherever you are and focus on everything that matters, from fitness to nutrition to recovery, all so you can push yourself further than ever or just through the next rep. It's total 360 support for a real difference. That's Anytime Fitness. That's Real AF. Visit anytimefitness.com. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. My name is George Scott, the Editor-in-Chief of Bike Radar, and today I am joined in the podcast studio by Simon von Bromley, Senior Technical Writer on BikeRadar.com, and Liam Cahill, Video Presenter for All Things Road and Gravel over on our YouTube channel. Simon, I'll start with you. How are you this afternoon? Not too bad, thank you. Still kind of fizzing from our time at the Tour Grand Depart, and obviously enjoying the race. So yeah, great. I'm going to start with the, the, the killer question, actually, before we get onto the uh, topic of today's podcast. And at this stage, we've got Jonas Vingegaard and Tade Bogaccia level pegging at the top of the GC. Who is going to win the race? Put your uh, pin your colours to the mast. Mm, I think Pogaccia. There we go. And Liam, I'll come to you. How are you and who is going to win the Tour de France? I'm very well. I'm I'm buzzing to go mountain biking later. Um, it's um, raining. You're aware it's raining? I'm not buzzing to go mountain biking later. <laughs> because I've got summer tyres on. Uh, I think that David Godu will... <laughs> no, no, he won't. Sorry. No, no, no. I'm going to say Vingegaard. Uh, I think that Pogaccia is, you know, making some Hail Mary attacks and one day it ain't going to work and he's going to put himself in a box. There we go. Mm. Should we finish the podcast there? Yeah. yeah. We've done it. Cool. Done. Now, what we are really going to talk about are the, some of the tech trends that are dominating this year's edition of the Tour de France. So... Simon and I were out in Bilbao 10 days ago now for the Grand Depart, uh, visiting all of the top teams, looking into the world's biggest shop window, that is the Tour, and seeing what the underlying trends are for this year's edition of the race, because we always see a whole range of new tech, new bikes, mechanic hacks, everything at the Tour de France, and it does provide the best insight 
of the season as to the trends that are emerging and that are perhaps going to dominate over the rest of the season and, and the years to come. And Liam, you've also been beaving away on our Tour de France content on our video channel. Lots more to come over the coming weeks. So I'm just going to dive straight in. I'll start with you, Simon. What was the key trend for this year's Tour de France that we spotted in Bilbao? What do you want to kick off with? Uh, well, we will start, let's start with one bike because I think that's probably the kind of one that generates the most conversation. Um, obviously, there are you know proponents of it and uh, some detractors as well, as with all innovations in road cycling. But um, crucially, I think we haven't, you know, in terms of you know, pure numbers in the peloton, we've only spotted maybe you know two and possibly three riders using it. But it, but the, the the kind of crucial aspect to that is that it's you know, been Jonas Vingegaard and Wout van Aert for Team Jumbo's Viz, Team Jumbo Visma, and then uh, Mads Pedersen for Little Trek. Um, now, obviously, you know, Jonas Vingegaard last year's yellow jersey, currently in the yellow jersey. Wout van Aert last year's green jersey, incredible rider. Mads Pedersen's already won a stage. We think on one by. You know, it, so it's it's just a kind of an an interesting one because the you know a bit like tubeless tires and disc versus rim brakes and things like that. It, this is this is kind of one of those things that has had a a stuttering start to life in the pro peloton. And I think most people who have been watching road cycling for a while will kind of remember the aqua blue debacle. Is that fair? Should we call it a debacle? It probably I, wasn't. I that think bad, it's fair. Really. I'd call it something else, but it wasn't really that bad, was it? But no, they, they didn't. The team didn't like it. Uh, and so after that, kind of cooled off. But it is kind of, I think this season, it is kind of officially back. You know, we saw a lot of it at Paris-Roubaix. We've seen a lot of it during the spring classics generally. And to see it being used in the Tour de France on the biggest stage by some of the biggest riders, you know, that, if that isn't a trend, I don't know what is. Well, you're right, because I don't think we saw, did we see any one by on the road at the Tour last year? But we've seen one by in time trials over yeah. the last few years. That's, that's certainly been a trend, but that now has extect, uh, extended to full-on road stages, both hilly stages and sprint stages. No, I, I can't remember seeing, specifically remember seeing any um, one-by for road stages last year. And and like you say, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it wouldn't be unexpected for a pan-flat stage to see a rider using one-by because obviously, you know, if it's a pan-flat stage and, these you know, these tour pros are kind of, you know, we saw last year's uh, Grand Depart in Copenhagen, uh, the stages were all pan flat and every rider had a kind of 54 or 56 tooth chain ring on their road bike. But actually, funnily enough, that would have been an ideal scenario for for one bike because no one would have been shifting into the little ring. But I don't think anyone actually did it. But yeah, in this year's opening stages around Bilbao, Jonas and, well, at least we know Vingegaard did use a uh, kind of one by setup. Despite, you know, we were in Bilbao, it was pretty hilly. Mm. So we saw, uh, we actually spent some time with Jonas Vingegaard's Cervelo S5 ahead of the race, and that was with a two-by setup, but he also had the S5 with a one-by setup, which is what he used for the opening stage. And, and I think we're right in saying that Wout van Aert also used one-by for the opening stage. Liam, were you surprised to see that given, well, poten- potentially it's a risk, maybe, maybe it's not. Obviously, the team have done their homework and they've done their testing, but surprising to see it on such hilly terrain. I think over 3,000 metres of climbing for the opening stage. Surely you'd want all the gears and all the range you can get. It's a weird one. I think pro racing, in a sense, is a bit of an outlier because especially at the Tour, you're talking about pretty much perfect road surfaces. You're And in, in pro racing in general, you're talking about fully closed roads. You are talking about silly, silly average speeds. And I don't think that the climbs make an incredible difference in terms of the opening stages until you get to the really steep stuff. But when you're talking about a climb that we get in the local area that you think, well, 
it's quite hard. Those pros, you know, Cheddar Gorge is close to us. Those, the pros went up at, a, you know, a silly average speed, something that I couldn't even touch if I sprinted up there. So in terms of one by, I think if you're talking about medium mountains, I don't see a massive disadvantage to it. I think it's personally the the telltale sign is the non-SRAM riders and what they are using because you will get riders that are on Shimano like Victor Campanarts who is an aero geek more than our Simon here (laughs) Um, he loves it if he is not using one by I'm skeptical about you know the the benefits of it for a particular stage it kind of seems to me like maybe SRAM would like their athletes to use it as in not maybe in certain stages, but occasionally in the tour. I'm sure, you know, I think it's kind of one of the classic things. I'm sure, you know, SRAM is one of the kind of brands that has been promoting, you know, it's one by, you know, it makes specific one by chain rings for its group sets, for example, whereas, you know, Shimano doesn't. So Shimano doesn't make this stuff. So in order mm-hmm. to use it, you know, teens would have to go, off brand and in a sense you know we might say that shimano holds enough sway that it could stop riders Mm. you know theoretically who wanted to run one by from doing it because they don't make one by chain ring so we do also have to consider that as well i guess i've you know i think it's tricky like i I think ultimately you know sram doesn't want to be in it wouldn't want to be in a situation where it pushed a rider onto something because in a sense they've had this before with (laughs) yeah aqua blue where you know the team they weren't really pushed by SRAM. They were pushed by the bike sponsor, Free uh, uh, T. Sorry, mm-hmm. not Cervelo. Gerard Vrooman went from Cervelo to Free T, and the the, the bike, the Free T Strada bike, didn't have a front derailleur mount, mm. and therefore couldn't take a two by system. And so they were kind of pushed into it via <laughs> the bike, and obviously then because of that, riders had to use it for all stages, and then were very vocal about it. I, I think nowadays. You know, the, the situation is different where I think, you know, SRAM is probably offering all of the riders a choice. And I'm sure they're saying, you know, yeah, this is great. You know, you don't have to worry about range. We've got 12 speed, nice wide range cassettes. And I'm sure they're, you know, giving every rider the kind of the, the kind of the sell for the advantages of both one by and two by in different situations. And yeah, certain riders are looking to take those kind of, you know, marginal error gains, potentially marginally better chain line if you get your gearing right and and all of those things on certain stages but yeah i you know i i we are certainly not seeing it on every single stage mm. i i would say that you know in in terms you say about shimano having sway over riders i would also say a similar situation is probably apparent at jumbo visma in that wout van Aert is the biggest rider in belgium and that is the biggest probably cycling country jonas fingergaard has now won the tour if those riders didn't want to use this stuff it would be Nathan Van Hoydonk and, you know, whoever else is doing the grunt work at the start of the stage. Those would be the riders on the one by, not your superstars. So I think this is probably a case of SRAM going, oh, we would like you to use it. And those riders going, actually, yeah, there is a benefit for me to use this in this particular stage. Yeah, exactly. I think, I don't, I don't. as you say, I think the, the profile of the riders, I think there's no way they'd be doing it without rider buy-in. But mm. yeah. I did for the sake of, for, for balance and also to 
um, provides SRAM's voice within this podcast. I did start to dig into this with SRAM before the pod, and they came back to me and said that we're not pushing any of our teams to use one by SRAM supplies all of the teams with the complete range of gear in one by and two by The teams then test all options to find what suits the rider slash the race the best. So that's SRAM's view, certainly uh, the public-facing view. Anyway, we're, we're clearly not aware of the dynamic and the relationship between sponsors and teams and riders and sponsors and performance managers within the team but certainly an interesting trend that is developing uh, is the use of one by drivetrains on the road not just in the classics not just in time trials but also at the tour de france so the, the shimano side of it is interesting as well in the in in the sense that as you say shimano doesn't offer a one by group set for the road so clearly the the motivation on shimano side is going to be to keep everyone on what they offer Looking ahead beyond this year's tour, Simon, do you think this is a game that Shimano will want to play in in the future? I, I don't know, really. I, 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 I don't think Shimano has really shown any appetite uh, for one by on the road. Obviously, they have one by in their GRX group sets. Um, I think until we see a kind of Shimano road derailleur with a clutch, I don't think we're going to see uh, one by for Shimano on the road. So I don't think it's going to be with this generation of group set. Now, if the next generation of group set comes with a clutch equipped, equipped rear derailleur, then that might change the game. But I, I think Shimano's clutches work slightly differently to SRAM's. And as a result, there is an element of uh, kind of added friction for having that clutch uh, in terms of like drivetrain friction, which uh, according, I, think, I believe according to testing by ceramic speed SRAM's clutches are basically frictionless because of the way they work differently um, and so there's less of you know you, you're not there's not a disadvantage in a sense to using their clutch equipped rear derailleur so yeah you know as you say we see lots of Shimano sponsored riders using one by in time trials but all of them are doing that by going to off-brand Shimano chain rings um, so <laughs> so there's not it so whilst yeah there is technically an unofficial way to get one by with Shimano group sets, it, 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 it isn't through, you know, Shimano supplied components. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in store at your nearest retailer.
Well, this is definitely one to keep an eye on because, as you say, we had the Aqua Blue situation a few years ago. Lots of very vocal riders, Adam Blythe in particular, about how one by just wasn't appropriate for professional racing. But we have seen that resurgence in recent years. So, uh, yeah, Jonas Vingegaard and Wout van Aert on stage one. I think Mads Pedersen was on one by for his stage win on stage eight. Certainly looked like he had a big old chaming on the front. Um, we've got the Alps coming up, so we'll keep an eye on uh, one by watch and see who's on one by in, in the Alps in a few days' time. Uh, let's move on to to tire choices now. One by is new for this year at the tour, but we've been talking about tires, or certainly tubeless tires, at the tour for the last few years. But again, another step forward this year, Simon, in, in the fact that the vast majority of teams were on tubeless um, in Bilbao, and that of course has remained the case over the opening stages. Certainly more than last year, but also we've seen widths increase once again compared to 2022. We have. I mean, certainly. You know, I saw the widest tyre I've ever kind of seen, you know, at use at the Tour de France in just for general road stages. Uh, and that was funnily enough on a climber's bike on Tade Pogacar's Carnago V4 RS. I measured a, a rear tyre, a GP5000 TT TR, it's the time trial specific one, on an NV SES 4.5 wheel at a whopping 32.2 millimetres wide, which, uh, you know, I mean, that's, you know that that's like that's pretty bananas. This isn't a bike built for, you know, a cobbled stage. Or, you know, like Paris Roubaix, there are still there will still be people running twenty eight tires at Paris Roubaix. You know, next year I would have thought so. So that was really interesting. But we also saw a little bit more nuance than I had perhaps expected. You know, I kind of expected that twenty eight C tires were becoming the kind of de facto standard. But actually, a lot of the teams seem to have been quite clever about what they've done, and you know, within the kind of constraints of their wheel sponsors a lot of teams have what appears to you know whether this is through luck or you know smarts probably smarts considering they're racing the tour de france they've optimized their kind of tire choices around their wheel sets so you know we we saw yama visma for example on uh jonas vingergaard's uh Cervelo s5 before the grand before the grand depart he had 24.4 millimeter vittoria corsa pro tubular tires on a set of reserve uh, 34, 37 rims. Now, I reckon those were kind of a lightweight combination that he would use on stages with lots of climbing to get the bike weight down to the minimum as possible. Obviously, shallow rims are lightweight, but also smaller tires are by definition kind of tend to be all else equal, lighter than wider ones. Um, but we saw Caleb Ewan's bike, had a, he had a 26C front tire and then a 28C rear tire. Uh, Ineos were doing something similar with narrower front tires, wider wider rear tires, and you know, presumed that is for kind of you know an aerodynamic um, front wheel and tire system, and then a kind of you know more comfortable, slightly better rolling one at the rear. So yeah, it was really interesting, really, and and you know, it kind of it it makes you. It, it's really it's really tricky. You know, we all kind of we've had this our wider tires faster debate for kind of many years now. And I'd kind of thought that we were all settling on around a 28 for normal, you know, for normal kind of road riding. Certainly that's, you know, where I feel like I am at the moment. But to see, you know, Pogaccia riding 32s, now, you know, whether he's intentionally gone out and asked for someone to give him a 32 millimeter tire, or whether this is just a kind of byproduct of the fact that their team, their team runs 28s and now they're sponsored by Envy. And those wheel, those tires just happen to measure that width on those new Envy rims that's just the way it is. You know, we don't really know. But the fact that he's racing on this and doing pretty well, <laughs> you know, I think he's going to win the tour. Like, yeah, it, it, this, yeah. So I, I'm kind of, I think it's, it's very, very interesting. 
Liam, I'll come to you. Do you think that this is an area, it seems to me like an area that teams are placing a hell of a lot of focus on now down to individual rider and stage setups? Yeah. The thing for me has been the the TPU inner tubes. I've, I've seen more of them in our coverage than ever before. And it seems like riders maybe went to tubeless and the teams have now taken a step back and gone, okay, how do we kind of optimize this for, like you say, particular stages, but also is a certain setup like tubeless better for the opening stages that might be more rolling and then the TPU tubes better for the traditional sprint stages or better for the mountains because they might be lighter. It's fascinating to me how how much detail has been placed on these considerations. And I think the most interesting team right now to be looking at is UAE because that was a team when Pogaccio was on the V3 RS. He was, you know, flicking between rim brakes and Bora Ultra tubs. Just all Campan- these... Campagnolo wheels for... Oh, is oh, that yes. what you mean, isn't it? The fanciest yeah. of the wheels. But they're relatively, as you say, kind of relatively narrow old school wheels. You know, not every yeah. wheel in their range, but at the kind of rim brake times, they weren't the most progressive. No, absolutely. And... It's it's fascinating to see how much time and effort that team has placed in the equipment side of things. Just like the amount of money that must be being spent. And I I don't want to throw to another podcast, especially not a rival podcast, but <laughs> the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast did a fascinating talk with uh, Jumbo Visma's um, performance coach, I think, who was talking about uh, the process by which teams will kind of get their products people making suggestions and how that kind of plays out and how these things then appear on the riders bikes um so you know if you've got time after this podcast <laughs> definitely go and give that a listen well i think the the point around envy coming on board as a sponsor is interesting for uae because as you mentioned simon the the wheels that pagacha had on his bike when we saw it they have a an extremely wide rim which meant that that 28 c tire inflated as you said to 32 millimeters and beyond but we also saw a lot of variation between what a 28 c or a tire that's at least marked or anomaly a 28 c tire um, on the side or what it measured up to when inflated we saw a lot of variation there and clearly that's down to um, the rim that it's mounted on yeah exactly um I think Van der Poel, Matthew Van der Poel's bike, or sorry, Mathieu Van der Poel, his Canyonero CFR had a set of uh, Shimano Dura Ace C50 wheels, for example, and compared to the MV rims, which have a 25mm internal rim width, uh, the Shimano wheels are more like, I think, maybe 21, possibly even, possibly narrower, can't, might have to check that, but they're certainly not 25. And so, yeah, his kind of Vittoria Corsa Pro TLR tyres measured up, I think maybe 27.7 millimetres, certainly just a, sh- a shade under uh, 28 millimetres wide. Now, I don't really know what, what kind of tyre pressure he was running, but we can probably assume it's nine bar since he's a professional. <laughs> but yeah, you know, so I think just sort of assuming that, you know, well, 50% of the team are on 28C tyres. It doesn't mean everyone's riding around on a 28 millimetre tyre. And it isn't as simple as back in the day, you know, obviously because tubulars were not affected by uh, rim width because the tyre was sewn together with an inner tube in the middle um 
you know, if you were running a 23 or a 25, it would, you know, assuming it was properly made, measure 23 millimeters wide or 25 millimeters wide, bang on when inflated. And that's, you know, for example, we saw Cofidis uh, running Michelin Power Cup uh, tubular tires on their Karima wheels. And um, yeah, those were a 20, they were marked 25 and they measured 25. Bang on, 25.0, <laughs> weren't they? As, yeah. uh, as, as you'd, well, as you'd not necessarily expect, but you hope. I think you did see some uh, tubeless tyres in, in the mechanics truck as well. Yeah, so I think, you know, I, I kind of, I ruminated on that and, and, I, and I, I think I came to the conclusion that it was probably down to the Karima wheels that they were running, uh, which are relatively narrow externally, I think around 26 millimetres, because it was a kind of 60 mil deep aero wheel set. Uh, now, that, in terms of kind of an external rim width, that's pretty narrow by modern standards. And if you were to run a, a, a tyre wider than that, it, it's going to you know potentially spoil the aerodynamics of the kind of wheel and tyre system. So hopefully that's the reason they were running 25 mil tubs, because otherwise that seems a little bit behind the curve. But yeah, I did spot on on the top of one of the team cars a number of wheel sets um, mounted up with uh, tubeless versions of the Michelin Power Cup tyre. Uh, so presumably, it, yeah, I, I, by the looks of things, they are... Yeah, they're they're optimizing it depending on what wheel sets they're using, and and I would imagine that the maybe you know, potentially the tubeless wheels that that Karima has access to, and perhaps a, a more modern rim shape that that suits a kind of wider tire, and then maybe it's up to the riders to choose what they want. Mm-hmm. Just to stick with Cofidis, one of the new bikes, and this is to move on to our next section. One of the new bikes that we saw at this year's tour was the Look Six Nine Five Seven Nine Five Blade RS. Uh, actually released a couple of weeks before the tour. We also saw um, a new Ridley, an unknown Ridley, a new BMC, uh, again, not a bike that's been launched yet, and a new Factor, which has actually since been launched this week, the Factor O2 VAM. So, so four new bikes at the tour, and they all play on a similar theme, and perhaps the BMC less so, that the, the BMC is more of an all-out aero bike, although still competitively light, as we'll come on to. But certainly the look, the Ridley and the Factor, all bikes that play into that one bike to rule them all theme uh, as we've seen with the specialized tarmac sl7 that's really going to set the standard though over the last few years so i'm um, do you think that was just reflective of the opening stages of this year's tour do you think there's a, a wider trend at play here where brands are really looking to nail that space because riders professional riders in particular do still want a bike that's going to tickle that uci weight limit i think it's a bit of both to be honest uh like yeah, as we kind of already already discussed briefly, last year's Grand Depart, we saw a lot of, you know, very heavy aero road bikes. And actually, we were kind of, you know, we came away with you know, kind of having weighed a load of 7.7 to 8.2 kilogram aero bikes with, as I said, massive chain rings, really deep wheels, you know, super deep tubes. But it, that was reflective of the fact that, yeah, the Grand Depart last year was around Copenhagen, Denmark, and there just weren't any hills. Whereas this year... Uh, around Bilbao, you know, it wasn't, the opening stages weren't by any means mountain stages, but they were really hilly. And, you know, we were kind of driving around and every time we'd come across a climb, we'd be like, well, if this climb was in the UK, this would be the best climb (laughs) in the UK. And this was, and these were kind of, you know, climbs that didn't even register. They weren't, weren't going to be used on the kind of, you know, Tour de France uh, stage profiles. They were just, you know, carriage ways to nondescript team hotels out in the kind of <laughs> borderlands of Bilbao. So, it, you know, it was a, there was a lot of up and down in those opening stages. And I think, you know, riders are historically, professional riders have been very weight conscious because, 
you know, I, I think every every professional rider probably has experience of someone telling them they need to lose weight, and so uh, I'm sure that if they if they've been if this has been drummed into them that weight is super important, then of course they're going to believe that bike weight is super important, and it is something that you can of course feel where aerodynamics can sometimes feel a bit intangible. Uh, so I, I imagine there is an, an element of, of pro rider pressure. So, you know, even when, when Trek launched the Madone last year, they, you know, they said all you know, the, the riders, they just said they wanted it to be lighter and faster. So I'm imagining that every time, you know, they go to a pro rider and ask them to what, you know, would, how could we improve this? They, I'm sure they say we would like it to be faster and lighter, faster and lighter, lighter and faster. You know, no one ever asks for a more comfortable bike. <laughs> Just to quote some of the bikes, uh, the weights of the new bikes that we did weigh. So Simon Clark's new Factor O2 van weighed in at 6.9 kilograms. That was the lightest bike that we weighed out in Bilbao. Caleb Ewan, uh, riding a prototype Ridley, came in at 7.5 kilograms. So around 300 grams lighter than the Ridley Noah that we uh, of his that we weighed last year, but still on actually on the heavier size for what, what, what was a very small bike in terms of the frame size uh, and then ben o'connor's prototype bmc a bike that again has not been released yet but looks like it's going to be a replacement for the time machine uh, a size 58 centimeter frame that came in at 7.3 kilograms so none of them actually right at the uci weight limit but impressive from the factor in particular i think it's a little generous to call that an aero bike it's got aero-ish tubes it's got no cables on show which i, I suppose is a nod to aero, but still very much a climbing bike, that one. Liam, if you've got these three new bikes in front of you, the Factor, the Ridley, and the BMC, which of them are, are you taking home with you for a ride this weekend? None of them. They're all boring. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, like, I'd, I'd seen these bikes coming out and just like, oh God, another one that if you... Says you the know, man who owns a specialised Athos. The, the Athos <laughs> is more than... A modern classic. ...meets the eye. Um, <laughs> yeah, all of these bikes look kind of like they've gone, oh, how can we make an SL7? Actually, the BMC does have a relatively interesting down tube. Um, that starts really, really narrow at the head tube and then flares massively towards the where the bottle cage is mounted. But even that doesn't look... Uh, what, about, like, what about the Look 795 blade with a lovely Mondrian paint job? You're a, you're again, a Francophile. Again, it, it, I, I do love France and, and the French. Um, but I'm... Yeah, that again just kind of looks an, like another aero bike. I'm, I'm yet to see a brand do something really fun with the latest UCI kind of uh, tube shape. And, and I the, mean, I think the we, fact I think it has that top tube. Yeah, I to think we fair. have in a sense, in a, you know, we've seen something like the Trek Madone with the hole in its seat tube, you know, the Ribble Ultra SLR, not a Tour de France bike, you know, but it's got the funky kind of wing mm. handlebar. I think I think it's really difficult to, to, you know, people, you know, we love those kind of really wacky, wild innovations but I think when consumers are shopping for a bike, you know, they kind of want something that can do a bit of everything, right? Because, yeah. you know, we're going to, you know, might take it on holiday for a mm. couple of weeks in the Alps, but then actually I've got to go chug it down the local lanes, which are broken farm roads, or, you know, maybe I want to go do the Tour of Flanders Sportif. So you kind of want a bike that does a bit of everything. And I think the Specialized Tarmac SL7 has been really successful in kind of popularizing that, that specific niche. You know, it's aero enough to compete with, you know, you're kind of very aero race bike. You're not going to feel like I'm on sitting on a tractor here whilst all my friends are on a, you know, on a rocket ship. But it's also got enough tire clearance that you can put big tires on if you need it. But it's also light enough that if I take it to the mountains, it's not going to 
feel like it's holding me back. So I can I can kind of see why a lot of other brands would want a bit of that success. And you know, in terms of the pro things, you know, obviously this is partly due to the riders who ride them. But the tour of, the the tarmac SL7s just has won a lot of races in the last mm. few years. My my issue with these bikes is that they're not kind of like the Ridley isn't something that wows me because it doesn't doesn't look fast like Ridley have mm. done some proper good looking bikes and you know you guys weighed it and it wasn't stupid light and that's Caleb Ewan's bike that's probably the smallest size you can get certainly a lot of convergence in design and that, you know yeah. that's something that we've noticed over the last couple of years no- nothing new here but going back to Ridley the first I don't know if it's the first one certainly one of the first Noah fast that they released back in the rim brake days with the the rim the brakes integrated into the fork they might not have worked very well but they <laughs> certainly look cool what do you need brakes for in a sprint <laughs> <laughs> yeah we don't know if the, if the bike is kind of heavier because of you know, the the frame set or the parts right like we say it's about 300 grams lighter than the Noah fast that he used last year with from what i can tell a virtually identical build but so many of these things can, it, it you know, wheels, what you're kind of, the tires, how much sealant they're running, like is that the integrate, it's running an integrated handlebar, maybe that's not as super light as some other options, like the saddle, for example, we don't know how much that one weighs, even if it has carbon rails, like, you know, it, it's not a kind of hyper light carbon saddle. You know, maybe Ridley's just one of those brands as well who's, who believes in making a slightly heavier, more durable bike compared mm. to, you know, I, you know, I obviously can't say whether a lighter bike is less durable but certainly the, the kind of the, the the thinness of that top tube on the factor o2 van for example like it you know it looks like a mm-hmm. you know a, a, like a cheese biscuit pinarello for example has said before that they, they don't kind of aim to make the lightest possible frame because they want a frame that can stand up to you know bumps and knocks and they also believe that slightly heavier frames maybe handle slightly better yeah, Pinarello's true or not, who knows? Pinarello is certainly an interesting one. We've talked about the specialised Tarmac SL7 extensively here, but that that's a, a mantra that Pinarello have pursued for the last, what, five, ten years plus, and that they've had the Dogma F as it is now, and have never had a dedicated lightweight climbing bike and a dedicated aero bike, certainly not in recent years. So, yeah, patience has paid off for Pinarello. Yeah, it's kind of come full circle, and yeah, maybe they've improved right all along. But yeah, the conspiracy theorists. Yeah, well, you know, we'll say that, you know, these brands are just kind of releasing new bikes just because you've got to release something new. But, you know, bike brands do exist to sell bikes. They do. And the Tour de France exists and existed from the very start to sell newspapers and and now bikes. So um, you you are right about the top tube on that Factor O2 Vam. Just looking at it again, it is incredibly thin where it meets the uh, where it meets the seat tube and the integrated seat mast. So yeah, that was launched this week. We'll put a link to the new Factor O2 van, our news story on that bike in, in the show notes for this podcast. We're yet to hear any more on the new Ridley and the new BMC, but we'll let you know when we do. Just a note on the uh, Factor O2. I nearly bought one over the Athos. And do you think you're happy with your decision? I don't know. I've never oh, ridden never an O2. Ridden. And that was the deciding factor. I'd ridden the Athos and I loved it. Well, I'm sure we'll be getting one in soon to review. In fact, we might have one on its way already so I can cry I'm I sure can, <laughs> can cry everywhere when I realise I made a mistake I'm sure that now that you've shelled out for your AFOS buyer's remorse will uh, oh, yeah. keep you in camp specialised speaking of which the commenters our lovely commenters over on the YouTube channel have pointed out that there is no sign yet of a new specialised tarmac no surprises the bike industry is a cyclical beast and it's been a few years since the tarmac SL7 was released but no sign of that yet at the tour but 
we'll keep our beady eyes peeled and see if anything breaks cover in the uh, in the coming weeks. On to the next one. So something that you spotted, Simon, out of the tour was the uh, the increased use of time trial tech, specifically aerotech across the board for road stages. And this is going back to tyres, actually, and, and back to Tele Pogacar's bike with the use of the Grand Prix 5000 TT time trial tyre on his uh, Colnago V4 RS. But he wasn't the only rider using those tyres. No, and 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 yeah, like like you said, we've kind of seen a, a kind of growing proliferation of time trial tech bleeding into road stages. Now, you know, it's not a surprise to see things like skin suits, aero socks, aero helmets being used in road stages increasingly. You know, ben Healy, for example, has, you know, even Luke Rowe of Team Ineos Grenadiers, you know, the the official marginal hashtag marginal gains team was bemoaning the fact that Ben Healy was wearing a proper full-on time trial skin suit in road stages this year. Not just a kind of, you know, road race aero suit, but like an actual time trial skin suit to which he'd had pockets attached. So, you know, you know when Team Ineos Grenadiers are moaning about other teams' marginal gains, they're <laughs> a bit behind the curve, maybe. But yeah, the main thing I've sort of, like kind of the really interesting thing in, in this sort of area that I've seen happening at this year's Tour de France, and, and a little bit um, at the Giro d'Italia to, to a degree, is that teams are now using time trial tyres for road stages. Now, traditionally, this would have been <laughs> a really kind of bold risk to take because time trial tires in the past have been incredibly delicate and incredibly thin. You know, we think of the Veloflex record, for example, is the kind of the, the, the archetypal time trial tire in the sense that it's, it is like Rizla paper thin and has the kind of the thinnest tread, but it, it's designed for the kind of 10 mile, 25 mile time trial or your hill climb. And, you know, if you get to the finish on it, you kind of say a prayer and put them away in a, in a, in a, <laughs> in a, in a velvet lined box until your next race. But, um, but yeah, I've, you know, we've seen Tade Pogacar's bike was very, they were very open about the fact that they were using time trial tires, basically Conti's time trial tires for every road stage. And over at Jumbo Visma, Wout van Aert has been using uh, the Vittoria Corsa Speed tubeless tyres on certain stages. And I also saw a Jayco Alula uh, team bike set up with Vittoria Corsa Speed tyres as well. Now, you know, I, it, generally, we're seeing the, you know, obviously Continental doesn't make a tubular version. Vittoria does make a tubular version of the Corsa, of the Corsa Speed but the teams doing it are running them tubeless. Now, clearly, they're off, they're, they're, they must be thinking that the addition of tubeless sealant is giving them enough kind of reassurance that if they have a, a, you know, a puncture, as is you know, not unlikely if you're, if you're taking this risk, that the tubeless sealant is going to kind of provide enough you know, protection and, and support to at least get you a bike change or you know, potentially seal it altogether. But yeah, I mean you have to contend with reduced wear life as well and but if you're not paying for your equipment and you know you're not changing your own tires that's that's not really a problem on to trend four let's keep it going and this this uh, along a similar theme in the sense of a, a trend that's been developing over the last few years and is continuing at this year's tour de france and that is the fact that that handlebars are, are getting narrower and narrower and again playing into the overall aero theme so you know simon we saw very few handlebars at 40 centimeters plus i don't think we saw a single 42 mark cavendish was an outlier at 40 but most riders and and even bigger riders like ben o'connor went well over six foot uh, on a 36 centimeter handlebar so they've clearly been watching your uh, watching your videos and reading your content because you've been riding 30 something <laughs> centimeter handlebars for a long time yeah i mean yeah I, I doubt they're getting it from me. They're probably getting it from Victor Campanarts <laughs> uh, or, or Dan Bigham or someone you know far kind of with a better reputation than me. But um, yeah, it, 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 
it is a it's a surprise to to not see a 42 centimeter handlebar or wider at the Tour de France. Now it doesn't mean to say that there aren't any because obviously we we didn't see every single bike in the peloton, but certainly the bikes of the kind of big name riders that we picked out, none of them had anything over 40. And as you say, Mark Cavendish, who would I suppose we would say, you know, maybe perhaps relatively old school in a sense that he had a classic bend handlebar. His was 40 centimetres wide. Uh, Van der Poel had a 40 centimetre wide handlebar, but he had his brake levers turned in. So the kind of position between the brake hoods, you know, the kind of effective position was much closer to kind of 38 or 36. And, he, you know, he's also a pretty broad guy. So, yeah, I mean, this is a trend across the board. And it is one of those things, you know, we your body is the biggest problem. So anything you can do to kind of optimise the aerodynamics of your riding position obviously going to pay dividends um you know there is the new uci rule about a minimum handlebar width this year which means you can't have a handlebar narrower than 35 uh, centimeters from outside to outside so we didn't see anyone pushing it to that extreme but yeah you know ben o'connor's riding a 30, 36 centimeter handlebar sort of center to center and he's a he's a big rangy guy so i don't think anyone's kind of concerned or too concerned about you know the kind of common complaints that we might hear such as breathing or kind of handling but yeah you, you know you went to the wind tunnel and tested narrow handlebars didn't you Liam so you have a little bit of experience for how much faster it makes you I think my forearm no sorry my triceps are still recovering <laughs> it's it's easily the the best way to get faster uh, two things from this year's coverage kind of stood out to me one was the the lovely surprise on Simon's face when you spotted Cavendish riding mm. this wide 40 centimeter <laughs> and it is right you would expect a sprinter that is there to do the final 100 150 meters of a race as fast as possible would want to be as small as possible but i guess you know cavendish is quite a small guy and he's also you know bracing with his arms and generating a relative amount of power with his upper body so probably just the position that feels best to him but I was also surprised to see that some riders that you would consider kind of an old dog of the peloton, Simon Clark, 36 centimeter handlebars. He's he's right up there with the new way of thinking, isn't he? I think he? he had the longest stem as well. One, I mean, 150? It, potentially it? a 150. Yeah. It's kind of, obviously it was an integrated setup. Um the it was the actually the new kind of well, relatively new back, black ink integrated handlebar that we first saw on the factor Ostrovam at last year's tour. But yeah, it had a kind of <laughs> a, 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 a rocket-sized 15 mm. or 16 centimeter stem on it, which is just like, you know, you can't you can't buy that kind of thing in the shop. You know, you go and go and wiggle and try and find a 15 centimeter stem, you, you won't get any options. For for most of these components as well, you can't actually buy what the pros are riding. If you so say Pagacha's set up of old the Data Alanera or whatever it was called. Data literally made bars for the pros that were 130, 140 centimeters long and 38 centimeters wide. You couldn't buy them. Well, we queried this with Mark Cavendish's bike, didn't we, George? Or you did, sorry, I should say. I, I, I did, yeah. So on Cavendish's bike, we saw... I mean, actually, first, it's worth saying that every bike that we saw at the Tour de France was running an integrated uh, cockpit, the vast majority of them one piece. So you know, actually, it's 
it's quite a lot of work for brands to put together these setups now with these quite unique arrangements. But yes, we did ask uh, Villa about this. The Cavendish was running, uh, I think it's a 14 centimeter stem. Uh, I'd have to refresh my memory on that. Either, either 13 or I think 14. It was 13. Yeah. 13 centimeter stem and a 40 centimeter handlebar width. And I asked Villa if this was a, a stock option, and it is an option that they sell on their website. So play and fair by the UCI rules, but they they basically said it's an option that's only produced for the pros because you know very few amateurs are asking for a thirteen centimeter stem and a, and a forty millimeter handlebar or forty centimeter handlebar. So um, and that's actually a relatively regular arrangement compared to Clark on a fifteen centimeter stem and a thirty six centimeter handlebar. So there's not going to be a huge amount of demand for that kind of arrangement in uh, on your local club run, but maybe there will be in a couple of years once everyone. Uh, sees what the pros are riding at the tour. Just as, a, <laughs> just as a top tip, black ink do produce a very big, wide range of you know sizes. So, if you want to emulate the pros, maybe maybe that would be the bar to go for. Do you think longer term this is something? So, uh, technically, these bars should be available. Um, as you say, not all of them will will actually be sold or or not kind of easily to come by, easy to come by. But do you think over the coming year or two, we will start to see a wider range of handlebars, but more to the point, more integrated handlebars in a narrower width? I think if you look at brands like Roval uh, is the big one for me, because you're talking about specialised kind of, let's not say subsidiary component brand, but it is. That, That brand does not produce much outside of like your bog standard stuff that they provide with bikes so as you go up the stem sizes the bars get wider and for an aero bar that is ridiculous <laughs> um i would imagine that they do not think that people would actually buy them mm. I, I kind of think we will i think if you look at the trek madone for example that you know that that reduced the handlebar on a stand for a standard size they reduced the handlebar width at the hoods by two centimeters per size so a kind of 42 i think became a a 39 or something like that at the hoods and then you know so if you were if you would would have originally and you know that was part of that part of their claims for the new trek madone was tying in rider gains from narrowing the handlebars so i i think we are gonna see more kind of narrower handlebars on race bikes you know like the kind of the one that um Ben O'Connor using, for example, was actually the handlebar that was first. It's kind of a really weird one, this. It first came on the BMC Kias gravel bike. A lot of this <laughs> is happening, the, the isn't it? The 36-centimetre wide handlebar yeah. on the BMC Kias gravel bike. But, it, you know, that is... I don't know if you if they make them with a 14-centimetre stem. You, you certainly wouldn't get that as stock on any bike. But, you know, it's kind of, I think it's kind of, they, they kind of adhere to the UCI rules by you'd probably be able to get one if you begged a dealer for it and coughed up enough money. You know, I, I think the interesting the interesting thing for me will be whether bike brands just gen- generally respond because we've just forever. You know, if you buy a size fifty six or a kind of fifty four, a size medium bike, it will come with a forty two centimeter handlebar, and it would be really nice if kind of component manufacturers just looked at the the trends for everyone swapping out these components in in you know in racing. If you're making race bikes. Becca slightly narrower handlebar. No, I'm not saying, you know, I want every size medium bike to come with a, a 36 centimeter handlebar because quite clearly for some people that's not going to be appropriate. But I think the days of the 42 handlebar being the standard should be numbered personally. And, um, you know, it, 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 as you say, it just kind of seems silly that these, these bikes are sold to consumers, but then you whack a 42 centimeter handlebar on it. I just don't really, 
see the point. So yeah, I think some brands are waking up and, and like you say, if, 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 if Trek and, you know, kind of specialized move on it, then, then yeah, I would imagine others to follow suit. The set, I said there were two things that were lovely to me this tour. One was Simon's face looking at Mark Cavendish's <laughs> super wide bar, but also when Cavendish crashed out and I was watching the Eurosport um, coverage and they kind of ran that montage and through my tears, I saw <laughs> Wiggins leading out Cavendish oh, to, yeah. to that famous win in the Rainbow Bands on the Champs-Élysées. What a beautiful sight. Rewind it and look at Wiggins's bike. The, the widest set of handlebars you've ever seen. He's like a 44 yeah. bar. But... And that's a guy that knew about aerodynamics. Is mm. it a tracky rider? So I thought it was lovely to kind of see how times have changed since, what was that, 2012? 10 years ago. Something yeah. like that, 2014? It was And how could you forget? You're a Brit. Mm. You're a real Francophile. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the best wins were Thibaut Pinot's. Yeah, just to see how positions have changed and... We see the average speeds going up all the time in the tour and people going, oh, they must be doping. <laughs> I think We're getting on the dodgy territory uh, now. <laughs> I think they might just be optimised. It's a good point, though, around the fact that, you know, often these trends can feel incremental or, mm. you know, that, that you know, recurring topics. And they can be. You know, we were talking about tubeless tyres last year and we we're talking about tubeless tyres this year. But when you throw it back a few more years and 10 years in the case of Bradley Wiggins and Mark Cavendish from the Champs-Élysées, you, you do see how far things mm. have come across all of the trends that we've mentioned today. And that will apply to our last one as well. And, and, and the fact that even today, even with all the money in pro cycling, there is certainly a theme of the haves and the have-nots when it comes to the latest tech, because not everyone is riding the latest and greatest, even in cycling's biggest race, Simon. No. And, and I think this was kind of really exemplified by um, Tadej Pogacar's UAE Team Emirates team, whose Carnago, their Carnagos had kind of every piece of bling available. Th their bikes were dripping <laughs> with upgrades, should we say. Uh, you know, they had kind of carbon tie uh, chain rings, carbon tie brake rotors, you know, the, these Envy wheels that we've already mentioned, which are kind of something like over £3,000 a pair if you buy them retail, which I'm you know, obviously I'm sure they're not, but... You kind of get the point. And they had a new Envy one-piece handlebar. You know, it looked like Tade Pogacar had a, a, a kind of custom seat post. It wasn't branded. It, it had a kind of, it bore a similar appearance to a, a brand called uh, Dorimo, which is a Spanish brand who makes ultralight carbon parts. But over at, and also the, the time trial tires as well, which, as, as you said, have a reduced wear life. But, you know, again, it, you know, they're happy to burn through tires because they're either confident they can just ask for more from their sponsor or they can afford them. Over at Total Energies, though, who, is, you know, worth worth noting is a, is a kind of pro-Conti team, so you wouldn't expect them to have quite the same budget as, you know, a, a, as a kind of team who has recently won the Tour de France. But they are still running 11-speed uh, Jura Ace and they were still, they also also still running uh, specialised turbo cotton clincher tyres, which is, you know, a very, very good tyre, but it is a kind of tyre and a technology that really is kind of verging on 10 years old now. You know, it, the Turbo Cotton had its kind of heyday when Tony Martin was winning World Time Trial Championships, for example, on it, um, which was around that kind of Bradley Wiggins era, maybe. I think Tony Martin was around 2014 when he won the World Time Trial Championships on that tyre. But it just, kind of, you know, so it's, it is a very good tyre, but it, it, it's kind of, 
you know, it doesn't have as low rolling resistance as the latest time trial tires or the latest road tires. It's not tubeless, meaning you don't kind of get that same puncture protection. You know, whether any of these things, you know, whether not having Durace 12 speed makes you significantly slower, I would probably suspect not. But but if these are the kind of things we're seeing, you know, you can kind of imagine what's going kind of going on behind the scene. You know, we always heard story, you know, the famous Team Sky story of them trying to bring a motorhome for Richie Port to the Giro, for example, which uh, the UCI swiftly stepped in and said, no, everyone has to stay at the, <laughs> the hotels you're provided. So, you know, if if we're seeing kind of publicly facing things such as this, you know, we know, for example, teams, Israel Premier Tech, for example, we saw them black marker penning out GP5000 tires that they clearly brought because they weren't sponsor correct. But if the teams are happy to show us this, then, you you know, you kind of imagine what's going on behind the scenes and what advantages UAE's money is able to pay for in terms of recovery and training and, you know, nutrition that the riders who are on Total Energies just simply won't have access to. We, we should also note that um, Total Energies has a set of mechanical Dura-Ace in the, in the team truck for when Sagan does Roubaix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He rode that at Strada Bianchi this year, I believe, George. He did, indeed. But back to UAE, that's, that's definitely a team that has invested across the board in, in coaching, recovery, training and tech over the last few years. I think that's a team that's gone for a big evolution to back their star rider in, in Taddy Bagatcha. And as far as tech is concerned, yeah, you can see a, a, a disparity certainly there between what they're running and and what some of the uh, less moneyed teams in the peloton are, are running in, in 2023. Uh, one very quick question to finish before we get kicked out of the podcast studio in our office. Simon, would you introduce a budget cap in cycling? I think I probably would, yeah, because I don't think there's enough money in cycling to kind of go around and you know as as we kind of said you know these these the kind of differences we're seeing on bikes are just the kind of tip of the iceberg for me where i think the kind of richer teams it's not just uae you know ineos is one of those very wealthy teams as well you know we have seen the richer teams dominate the biggest races over the last few years and and i think having a budget cap would make the sport you know hopefully more competitive but also potentially more sustainable as well because it becomes a kind of a known entity that a sponsor getting into the sport knows that this is the kind of maximum that a sponsor needs to spend, but also that like, you know, there isn't going to be another sponsor out there spending six times as much as you and locking you out of winning anything. You know, we could look at the sports uh, such as Formula One, which has recently introduced a, a cost cap and Max Verstappen is running away with this year's title by a long way. But if if we were to take him out of the equation, you know, it's an incredibly competitive season, and I do think that it it has improved the competitiveness. And I, and I don't think you could really make an argument that it has reduced innovation, you know, or kind of spoiled or stymied technological advancements or anything like that. So yeah, I think I would. Liam, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't. But there are a few things that I do before that happened around the kind of development team structure, um, but also transfer fees, stuff that would maybe secure the underlying layer that forms pro cycling, um, especially when you look at the state of British cycling and teams in this country just and and also riders coming out of the US I'm not really hearing much coming from from out there um when they have one of the best development squads in Axion in the world and yeah 
There's so, hardly even any world tour races in, the, in America anymore. No, I mean, probably not in the UK either. Nope. I saw today, uh, and, and we are getting off topic, uh, that the Axion team has uh, signed a partnership with Jayco mm. to become their development team. But yeah, certainly a topic for another day and another podcast, probably a series of podcasts to, to dive into the broken business model that is, <laughs> that is professional cycling. I think we need a few beers for that. We would. <laughs> Let's wrap it up there. Liam, it's been great to have you on the pod. Thank you very much. And Simon, pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Do get in touch with us at Bike Radar by emailing podcast at bikeradar.com. As ever, we love to hear your feedback. We always love in particular to get your suggestions for topics. So do email us and of course, leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice. It helps us send us sailing up the rankings and gets this podcast out to more people just like you. Thank you once again for listening and we will speak to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 